0: Mark chapter 11, we're going to look at the first 19 verses. When Emperor Franz Joseph I died in 1916, he was the last emperor of Austria, and he was last in the line of the Habsburgs who ruled Europe for over 600 years. Franz Joseph's funeral in 1916 was the last extravagant imperial funeral in Europe. The funeral processional was quite large and adorned with elegant dignitaries. The coffin was draped in uh, royal black and gold colors of the Habsburg family. The military band played somber music as the casket bearing Franz Joseph was uh, accompanied by the light of torches. The funeral procession descended down a stairway of the Capuchin Monastery in Vienna. At the bottom of the stairway was a great iron door. Behind the door was the Cardinal Archbishop of Vienna. This is a great picture. The officer in charge followed a prescribed course that had existed for centuries. The funeral procession stood poised. Open, cried the one in charge. Who goes there, responded the cardinal behind the iron door. We bear the remains of his imperial and apostolic majesty, Franz Joseph I, by the grace of God, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, defender of the faith, prince of Bohemia, Moravia, grand duke of Lombardy, Fenzea, and Styria. and then the Officer continued with 37 more titles for Franz Joseph. We know him not, replied the cardinal. Who goes there? The, offer, the officer spoke again for a second time, using a much abbreviated and less ostentatious title reserved in times of expediency. We know him not, said the cardinal. Who goes there? Finally, the third time, the officer replies by stripping away all the titles. We bear the body of Franz Joseph, our brother, a sinner like us. With that, the door opened, and Franz Joseph was admitted into his family burial place. The story reminds us that before God, death is an equalizer. No one is admitted into God's kingdom for money, wealth, power, or good works. We are all sinners. It is only by God's grace and through faith in Jesus Christ that we are admitted into God's kingdom. The story reminds us also of how different Jesus was than Franz Joseph. Both were kings. But Jesus was not about pomp and splendor, pomp and circumstance. Jesus was a humble king, and we see this in Mark chapter 11. In Mark 11, Jesus is king for a day. We know it as Palm Sunday. Um, it was the very first Palm Sunday. It wasn't called Palm Sunday till much later. It was a week before Easter. That means Jesus is going to be dead soon. The crucifixion will be in five days. So we've been working through the book of Mark. And Jesus had a public ministry of about three years. And we're coming now. To the end. And we still have six chapters. So today is the day of recognition, verses 1 through 11. The day of recognition, if you have a uh, program, you can follow in the outline. And I would encourage you to follow along in the text in Mark chapter 11. The day of recognition, first the context, verse 1 as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. So Little reminder here, we should see the map. There we go. It's really helpful to have a map when you're studying the Bible. So, as a little reminder, for two and a half years, Jesus has focused his ministry in the north of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Galilean Ministry. Capernaum was his headquarters, north side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, recently, we have come south. Jesus has been headed to Jerusalem. He took a six-month time period to get to Jerusalem from the north. He came down uh, and crossed the Jordan River to the east side. And then last week, Jesus came through Jericho. There's a lot that we don't have in the book of Mark that are in other passages, like it was in Jericho that Jesus meant um, Zacchaeus, And in the book of Luke, there are lots of parables that aren't recorded anywhere else that happened during this time period. Also in John chapter 11, um, what has just happened before today is that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead on his way to Jerusalem. That was kind of a big deal, which explains why the crowd is going to be so large today on this day of recognition so he came to uh, and Bethany was a place that he stayed when he came to Jerusalem when he made his pilgrimages to to Jerusalem uh, at least once a year he would stay at Bethany sort of his practice Bethany is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived and that was kind of his home base while he was there so um, he's on his way instructions, verses 2 and 3, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of us, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So Jesus is becoming very intentional in his ministry. One of the things that we have seen in the past is Jesus has sort of veiled his ministry. He's been cautious about who he reveals himself to. He's told a lot of parables intentionally to veil some of the truth. It was going to cause people to think they would need explanation, they would need interpretation, and they would need time to understand. Now Jesus is getting in your face. He's getting intentional about his actions. This Uh, These instructions are very intentional for his disciples to go find the colt and to bring it back. So Jesus is going to take some risks. Um, But what Jesus is instructing is very significant. The disciples uh, were to retrieve the colt or the donkey. It was to be one that had never been ridden before. In the Old Testament, when animals were used for the purpose of serving God, they were to be unused, unridden, untrained. They were usually young. They were usually ready to be set apart for God, a holy purpose, a sacred purpose. Jesus had a sacred purpose for this donkey. The preparations, verses 4 through 8, they went and found a cold outside in the street and tied it, tied it at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing? Untying the colt. They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. So the disciples did, just as Jesus had instructions. By the way, there's a little lesson there. Do what Jesus says. And uh, their faith is going to grow. They're going to trust. They're going to learn more and more to trust what Jesus says. And so they followed his instructions, and they accomplished his goal for the donkey. When, verse seven, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw cloaks over it, he sat on it. Now this is kind of a surprise. It's very unexpected. Jesus walked all over Israel, miles and miles and miles. The only time he didn't walk was when he was on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. But now um, now he's sitting on a donkey. And the disciples sort of make a quick little saddle with their cloaks. Verse 8, many people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, this thing is changing extremely. They're throwing their their outer garments, and they're laying them on the road. They're making a carpet, red carpet treatment for Jesus. And this all happens here kind of quick and not much fanfare. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. John tells us they were palm branches. And they're laying down these palm branches, and they're making a carpet. They're giving Jesus the red carpet treatment. Um, so there are people there have been people that have come following Jesus from Jericho. Jesus healed a the man there, the blind man. There are people who have come because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He is a popular guy. The crowds are large. Not only that, likely as they come in close to Jerusalem, they're picking up pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire, Jewish pilgrims who have come to Jerusalem to worship because of the Passover. People from all over the Roman, Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire came to Israel, to Jerusalem, to worship and to offer sacrifices and to celebrate great Feast like the Passover feast, which is God's deliverance from Egypt. Zechariah 9.9 describes what is about to happen. So we go back to the Old Testament a few hundred years before the birth of Christ. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Who's the daughter of Zion? It's Israel. It's the city of Jerusalem, Zion. Zion was the mount, a little mountain there, a little high hill. And that's uh, the location of Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey. Who would have thought? On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, tells of this event, and Jesus is intentionally walking right into it. Um, This was a sign for the people in Jerusalem. This was a sign for the religious establishment, those people who served at the temple, the priesthood, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests. Their king was coming. He is arriving shortly. Verses 9 and 10, the recognition. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted. So there's a group ahead of Jesus and there's a group following Jesus. It's a very large crowd. And uh, for a few hours, there will be great excitement on the road to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So the crowd begins to shout, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom over our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna literally meant, Lord, save us. And that was the cry of people when they went up to Jerusalem. It was a common one. And it becomes a praise. Uh, it... it, it it becomes more than, Lord, save us. But it is a prayer and a praise at the same time. They're asking for deliverance. And in the Old Testament, at the Passover, God delivered his people from Pharaoh and from the Egyptians. And now there's an excitement about a little Messiah excitement. I really don't think the uh, audience understood a lot about who Jesus was. They had bits and pieces. They were excited. They knew about miracles. Jesus is this celebrity rock star. He's really cool. He's really important. Some great things might happen. Who knows? And so they uh, actually are quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And it was very common for people to recite Psalms on the way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And this would have been an antiphonal. One group says one verse and another group says the other verse. So there was a group ahead shouting one verse and there was a group behind shouting one verse. So one group would have said, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. What do they want want to be saved from? The Romans? From the Gentiles? From their enemies? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So this, this crowd is quoting Psalm 118. Also in uh, verse 10, the psalm says, Blessed is the coming. This is what they shouted in, on the streets. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They understood something about the Messiah, the king who would come and establish David's kingdom. We looked at that last week in 2 Samuel 7, um, verses 13 and 14. Let's go back to Luke chapter 1 and see how Luke describes this. This is when um, the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would be become pregnant with a very important child and she's to call him Jesus. Look at verse 30. But the angel Gabriel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. Verse 32. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. That was the name for the son of the most high God. That is a very unique title for any child to have. The son of the most high God. You will Um, Verse 32, he will be great, be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Something about this, and Jesus would be a descendant of David. Something about this uh, child, God is going to give a kingdom to this son, Jesus, and it will be the kingdom of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants, that would be Israel, Forever, his kingdom will never end. It will be an eternal kingdom. This son of David will have. So there's a sense of acknowledgement of this on this uh, triumphal entry, this king for a day. These people are going to let Jesus be king for a day, by the way, because it's not going to last. It's going to be very short-lived. But they, they something about this Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And guess what? It's over. It's done. They've gotten to Jerusalem. The trip is ended, and everybody disperses. Kind of weird. Verse 11, the reconnaissance, really a reconnaissance mission. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. What a way to end the day. So Jesus comes in. He arrives as the king um, prophesied in the Old Testament. He arrives to Jerusalem. Where does he go? He goes to his father's house. Do they want him? They don't even notice him. And the crowd has disappeared. We don't know all the facts, how it happened. But it was just like, this is exciting, this is big, and now we got to our destination and everybody just kind of Goes her own way. And Jesus goes to the temple. Um, He goes there intentionally. The temple was his destination. He came for surveillance. And what he finds is greatly disappointing. He's going to return tomorrow. But what he finds tonight is greatly, at the end of the day the king for a day, is really disappointing. But Jesus has always been interested in the temple. The temple has always had a special place in the mind of Jesus. This is the place where people worship his father. This is the place where people come for prayer. This is the place where people come and learn and have the Old Testament scriptures taught to them. Now let's go back into the life of Jesus, Luke chapter 2, verse 46. This, you remember this, Jesus was 12 years old, and he gets separated from his parents. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Next slide. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know? Here's a communication breakdown with parents and teenagers. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know that? This is where I wanted to be. This is where you can find me. I want to be... Where God is honored and where people pray and where people learn about God, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And when you get to heaven, parents, you can ask why Jesus didn't tell his mom where he was going. So, um, Jesus has come to uh, the temple at the end of the day and he's greatly disappointed which we will soon soon see in our next section, the day of house cleaning. Verses 12 through 19, the day of house cleaning. And we start with the fig tree metaphor. And this is kind of a hard one. Look at verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, so Jesus went to Jerusalem, he went to the temple, and then he went back to Bethany between one and two miles. And so the next day, he gets up Monday, because Palm Sunday was Sunday, the first day of the week. On Monday, he uh, wants to return, and on his way, leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, "'May no one ever eat fruit from you again.'" and and the disciples heard him say it, and what do you make of that? And that was a hard one for the disciples to understand. And the good thing is, I don't have to explain the whole thing because that's what the sermon's about next week. Um, But one of the things this is, this is a metaphor. This is a living parable. It's not about the fig tree. It's about the metaphor of the fig tree. This is an unusual event, Um, and it's impossible for us to understand this without Jesus' visit to the temple that comes next. Um, Upon a casual reading, verses 12 through 14 seem like Jesus is being petty, you know, like kind of self-centered there. You're just going to curse the fig tree or say, make this uh, statement that's going to be harsh. Uh, Some said it's destructive. Uh, We must look beyond the fig tree to what the fig tree represents. A fig tree is an incident, is a metaphor. It's like a living parable. It's harsh. In the Old Testament, we need to understand this. God spoke of Israel as a vine and a fig tree. He used those uh, analogies. And what God was wanting from his people, he wanted them to be fruit bearers. He wanted, it, he wanted Israel to bear figs and to bear grapes. Fruit of the vine. Micah chapter 7 verses 1 and 2. This is God through the prophet speaking. He says, what misery is mine. I'm like, here it is, a metaphor, one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept uh, from the land. So there's no figs. It's a metaphor. It's, he's, God is like this. He's come to his people, and there's no fruit. Uh, can we go back? Just to, verse 2. The faithful have been swept from the land. We're missing godly people, God says. Next slide. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. So uh, God's desire for his people, Israel, that they bear fruit, spiritual fruit, that they have an impact with their lives, that lives get changed, that people honor God and they love people and they love their neighbors as themselves. And they want to share. They want to be generous. They want to see other people Follow in God's path. And by the way, that's kind of what Jesus was talking about in John 15 when he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And he, and he wants his followers to bear fruit. Another passage is Jeremiah 8, verse 13. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. There's probably both a literal and a spiritual uh, context there. They're not bearing fruit. And there is going to be divine judgment. That's what the fig tree incident is all about. There will be divine judgment. Because God's people are not bearing fruit. Um, they look prosperous. If you walked into Jerusalem on that day. They looked prosperous. Thousands and thousands of people came to this beautiful temple that Herod had rebuilt and added onto and made larger and more extravagant. And there were hundreds of people who had come to make animal sacrifices to worship. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees were dressed to the hilt. They really looked good. And they were well respected. Um, at least they had, they had position and and uh, power and authority. Jesus was speaking of the fig tree, and he was speaking about the nation Israel, and the nation Israel will be totally destroyed in seventy A.D. by an outside force. The Romans will come in and destroy, and they'll tear down the temple, and they'll turn, they'll pull out every stone of the temple. And this will be a judgment on Israel. Verses 15 through 17, the actual house cleaning incident. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Jesus did not waste any time. When he came into the temple the night before, he got to see what was going on. He got to see the bird cages. He got to see the, the, the cattle, uh, the places where they kept the cattle. I'm sure it smelled like manure. This wasn't what the temple was made for. In fact, this took place in the, in the uh, court of the Gentiles. The temple was a large area, and it was divided off. And the court of the Gentiles, non-Jewish people could come here. They could pray here. They could worship here. They they could be taught the Old Testament here. They could not go in and offer sacrifices, and they could not go in uh, to anything inside. But this is where they could connect. This was to be open to them. But during this time, and apparently Caiaphas has really upped the whole thing here because people used to be able to go to the Mount of Olives and they could could buy animals to be sacrificed at the temple. You know, you come uh, 500 miles to worship at Jerusalem, you may not carry your lamb. Some people did. Or you may not bring your doves to be sacrificed or your pigeons. But you could buy them there. And there was a profit to be made. And not only that, there had to be a temple tax paid, a shekel according to the sanctuary. Well, that meant if you had Roman money, you don't have shekels. And if you have Greek money, you don't have to shekels. And so there was this business going on. Okay, you've got to exchange your money for shekels so you can pay your temple tax. There's a little bit of money to be made in that transaction. That's what money changers did. So there was this business, religious business going on. Well, apparently Cai- Caiaphas, the high priest of that time, Um, added to it in the years that he was high priest, and he brought it into the temple. And he established these business opportunities for people to sell animals and to exchange money in the court of the Gentiles that was to be used for the Gentile people who could seek God there. Now, there's no room to seek God because of all of this noise and all of this clamor and, and this crowded Area, and so Jesus um, is a little bit upset about this. He finds cattle stalls and bird cages, and uh, Jewish religious leaders had turned this into a marketplace, and it was out of convenience, and every exchange was for a profit. Verse seventeen. As he taught them, after he, 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 he came in with righteous anger and he, uh, he took action, he acted for God, and, and he, he drove people out. By the way, this is the second time John's gospel records that Jesus did this the first year of his ministry. Now, at the last week of his life, he does it again. It's a little bit different, but it's two times As he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That was the purpose of the temple. One purpose was it would be a prayer for all nations, a house of prayer for all nations. And then he calls it a den of robbers. And it's a den of robbers because a den is where they hang out. This is where the religious establishment hangs out and takes, takes advantage financially from worshipers. And they are, that's why it's a den of robbers. The robbers relates back to the high priest and the priesthood who makes this possible. So this is another fulfillment of the Messiah on this day. Yesterday, it was riding on a donkey. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 tells us, Malachi says, speaking for God, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Who's the messenger? John the Baptist. And he would prepare the way for Jesus. And that's what he did in the early years when when John was uh, active before he got beheaded. He appeared on the seed and said, Behold, the Lamb, uh, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And when people repented... He baptized them, that they they wanted to follow God, and they wanted to be obedient, and they wanted to live by faith. And they were baptized, and they got ready to hear Jesus. So that's why there was a group of people ready for Jesus when he shows up. Now, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Who's that? It's Jesus. Jesus would come to his temple. He is the Lord of the temple, by the way temple is his. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking, they're looking in all the wrong places, will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. This is a new covenant not yet made in Malachi chapter 3. That's what Jesus came for, was to establish a new covenant covenant, by his death and his resurrection. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. This was a tip-off to the Jewish audience that the Messiah was present The king had arrived. Isaiah 56 verse 7 says this. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. God intended that that, um, his people reach out to the Gentiles From the beginning, the temple was a place that must include all people. That was the plan. And it had been corrupted seriously uh, in the first century. Verses 18 and 19, the religious offense. Verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. You can imagine, they're pretty upset because the blame goes to them. And it's been obvious that Jesus has been so intentional. He's been offensive in his speech and his actions, driving out the money changers. So they were looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So the religious leaders outraged. Now they are more determined than ever to kill Jesus. Verse 19, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city and they went back. To Bethany. So the king had arrived, and he rode to Bethany, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. Then he goes into the temple in Jerusalem, and he fulfills. That's the first one is Sunday, this one's Monday, and he fulfills Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Peter describes it in this way: 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Peter says, as you come to him, meaning Jesus, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, here's the next part I want you to see. First, next slide. For the scripture says, see, I lay a stone in Zion. That's Jerusalem. Jerusalem. A chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him, the one who comes to him by faith, will never be put to shame because he's going to be given eternal life and not face judgment. Verse 7, now to you who believe, you who believe in this audience, this stone is precious. Jesus is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected, the leaders of Israel rejected Jesus The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Next slide. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Jesus is a stumbling block. And he was a stumbling block for the Jewish people, to the nation Israel, and they missed it. And he came right into Jerusalem and presented himself. So let's... uh, Let me share some lessons from this passage. Some lessons. Number one, you can trust what God says in the Bible. Doesn't sound like rocket science, does it? It's not rocket science. So go back to Jesus giving instructions to those two disciples. They followed his instructions because they trusted him. Jesus wanted their faith to grow. He wanted them to trust them more and more because times are coming. It's going to be really hard. And that's, by the way, the hardest time to have faith is when times get tough. The same is going to be true for us. We can trust God in his word. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. A few things to support this lesson. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. This is why we can count on God's word. This is why you can trust what God says. Um, The law of the Lord refers to God's word. By the way, all of God's word is Jesus' word. All of God's word is Jesus' word. The law of the Lord is perfect. And he, was, he lived long before this was written. And he was with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. You want your soul refreshed, it's going to come from God's word. The statutes of the Lord, that's God's word, are trustworthy, making wise the simple. You want to be smarter? You want to have more wisdom? It's going to come from scriptures. The precepts of the Lord. It's scripture. That's God's word. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant. It's the Bible. Giving light to the eyes. Enabling you to see more than you can see physically and discern. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is the result of God's word. It's it's the impact of God's word in our lives. It's pure and it has an impact and endures forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm. That's God's word. All of them righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. What if we really believe that? That God's word was more precious than gold. It's sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is worn in keeping them. There is great reward. You can trust what God says in the Bible. Secondly, excitement about Jesus is not the same as commitment to Jesus. Excitement about Jesus is not the same as commitment to Jesus. The crowd shouted, Hosanna. They were very excited. They laid down their coats, red carpet treatment for Jesus, king for a day, and then it just kind of disappeared. The interesting thing is, I don't know this for sure. My guess is there were a lot of people on the crowd that day that said, Hosanna, that were also in the crowd five days later when they said, Crucify. They were excited, passionate people. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, if you want to be passionate, if you want to be excited, keep my commands. Just follow me. Be obedient. Thirdly, there is a place for holy, righteous anger. There is a place for holy, righteous anger. Jesus had a righteous anger about the temple. He really did. He was passionate. It was for God. It was a justice issue. Some of you get very passionate about justice issues. There can be a righteous anger in that. That's a good thing. Jesus acted out in righteous anger, to, ch- to bring change to his situation. So you can have a righteous anger for God that can be used as a passion to make things better in your world. Be careful, though. Be careful. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says this, In your anger do not sin, so you can have anger without sinning. Now, you know, the the, the the standard joke is Christians don't get angry. They just get disappointed. The Christians get frustrated. They don't get angry. because they, they, they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to be truthful about it. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let your sun go down while you're still angry. Your anger should be handled every day. Don't carry it over. And do not... Give the devil a foothold. Anger is really dangerous because anger can be an open door for spiritual attack, for demonic attack. So be careful. Be careful with your anger. Be careful that you don't sort of rationalize that your anger is always righteous. Parents, be careful. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So that's good advice. Be slow about becoming angry. Think about it. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Angry people are dangerous if they don't have righteous anger. And lastly, number four, God is working out his plan on earth today in your life. God is working out his plan on earth today in your life. This is a little more complicated to explain on what I mean, so I'm going to try here. I don't know what God's plan is for your life. I know a few things for sure. Um, I know that he wants you to become more like Jesus, I know that for sure. I know he wants you to be obedient. I know if you're going to be obedient, you're going to be involved in making disciples for Jesus. That's evangelism and helping people grow. Those are, those are givens. That's God's plan for your life. Um, there's some things in our story today. It's not easy to understand the fig tree incident. It's not easy to understand Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why did he do it that way? Why did the crowd disappear why did he go into the temple and drive out the money changers? Couldn't God have, you know, if I were writing a story, I would have done it much different. You know, I would have done a better story, wouldn't you? Man's ways are not God's ways. God's ways are not man's ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth. So, are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts? So, God has a plan, and He's working it out. I don't know why everything happens. I don't know why babies die. I don't know why people get cancer. I don't know why people can die in a car wreck. I don't know why innocent people suffer. But God is in charge. And you can trust him. We, we don't see all the answers. But you can trust him. And I'm just going to leave you with my favorite verse, Matthew six thirty three. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The goal is not to get all the things. The goal is to seek first his kingdom. That's what he wants. I love the prayer that the late Joseph Bailey wrote. He wrote a book that was really popular in the 70s called A View from a Hearse, because he lost a child. And he wrote this prayer. He said, King Jesus, why did you choose a lowly donkey To carry you to ride in your parade. Had you no friend who owned a horse, a royal mount with the spirit of of a king to ride? Why choose a donkey, small, unassuming beast of burden, trained to plow, not carry kings? King Jesus, why did you choose me, a lowly, unimportant person, to bear you in my world today? I'm poor and unimportant, trained to work, not carry kings let alone the King of kings, and yet you've chosen me to carry you in triumph in the world's parade. King Jesus, keep me small, so all may see how great you are. Keep me humble, so all may say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not what a great donkey he rides. So when all is said and done, we're like the donkey. Let's stand and pray. Father, we just want to acknowledge that your ways are not our ways. And uh, we trust that you are a sovereign God and that you are in charge and you're working out the details of our lives. We don't always see them. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that your word is sure and true and trustworthy. May we humbly walk with you. And one day, maybe we'll hear, well done. For Jesus' sake, amen.